Uh, hey, Mike. Hey. Welcome to Divergent Opinions. Now you welcome me. Back. I'm welcome. No, you say, and welcome to you as well. And welcome to you as well, sir. Good, good work. All right, we're already on. And also course. to you. Thank you. Peace be with you. Um, so nothing really happened in the world this week uh, vis-a-vis technology. Lots of stuff happened vis-a-vis other stuff. Vis-a-vis. Like politics and the world and whatnot. Yes. But vis-a-vis technology, uh, aside from a Microsoft presentation somewhere that I didn't follow, and what was the Microsoft presentation? Oh, they did something about Windows 8.1. Oh, I heard something cool about that. What was it? I don't know. There was something really neat in 8.1. Uh, oh, it's got like built-in 3D printer support. Really? Yeah, I think they're like shipping drivers for. I don't know. Well, okay, so we didn't have this on our list, but. We didn't. Did we talk last week about MakerBot getting bought by Stratasys? No, we did not. Okay, so that probably ties into this nicely. Okay, ties into what? Windows. Okay, and sure. a podcast. Yeah, the transitive property of We're podcasts. Doing this. Uh, I'm not not a lot of sleep. Yeah, but you have drugs. I know, but the, I don't. No, I don't. So here's the thing. I'm on prednisone which is like a steroid but it's it's just an anti-inflammatory i don't think it actually makes you less tired does it no i don't think so i think i'm just like i think i've always had um it's been so long since i've actually had it that i don't even remember the name anymore what's the thing where you can't sleep insomnia insomnia um i think i have insomnia all the time except i'm like so whatever sinusy thing I have that I just sleep through it. <laughs> I think I sleep through my insomnia. Because <laughs> today, like around like three in the morning, I was like, wow, there are so many things I could be doing right now. <laughs> and so I gave it a good like, you know, college kid try. And I got to like 5.40 in the morning. And then I was like, I can't do this anymore. And by then, the dog was thoroughly convinced that I was awake. And so he was like, oh, I see. Let's do this. Yeah. I love that game of pretend to be asleep so the dog doesn't know. No. Um, and he's wearing one of those big foam, like, collars. Yeah, so he's really fun when he comes and talks to you. <laughs> well, I'm glad you have new excitement in your life. Yes, exciting. Excitement is the excitement of life. No, excitement oh. is the spice of life. That's the expression. Spices are the excitement of life. I need vanilla. Um, right, so MakerBot got bought by Stratasys. Stratasys okay. being a... They're like your neighbors. Yeah, Stratasys is here in Minnesota. They're a sort of traditional 3D printing company, so they want to sell you a factory full of 3D printers. Oh, no, they want to sell you one, but it's going to come on a truck. Well, either either way, they want to do one of those two things. If you're an architecture firm, they want to sell you one that makes very nice models. Like the size of a walking fridge, basically. Right. And they also have been pushing into the space of 3D printing as deliverable manufacturing process. Right. Um, and then they bought MakerBot. Why did they buy MakerBot for $600 million? Um, I mean, because they want to get everybody involved. I mean, this definitely makes sense. I mean, it seems like you can't make shit that's useful with a MakerBot. Right. Like, that's the sort of end game. Um, and so you use it for doing dumb little prototypes, and then you eventually have to go to somebody. And so if they have a soup to nuts, I mean, hopefully this means that we're going to get something that's not as, like, java scripty java e to run everything in um i mean everything's g-code so it's not a huge deal but you know there's just like a hundred thousand settings and it's just it's so open sourcey yeah and i don't know anything about the stratus software but um maybe it's a little better i mean kiss max support goodbye yeah most likely but if nothing else linux you won't be able to run on ubuntu anymore i'm sure maybe you will I don't know. But it's a big uh, a big firm that 
Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I just I was shocked to see because it seems antithetical to the MakerBot spirit, and obviously some people yeah, have had I mean, some criticism about that. Yeah, it seems like this is why you don't take a lot of money. What I, mean, I can't imagine this being breeze, bray, breeze like choice of exits. You can't really go from we're changing the world, we're an insurgency to oh we were bought. Right. So there are a lot of people in the maker community out in New York who are a little upset about this because, you know, MakerBot grew out of a community effort. And obviously right. they're not the ones cashing in on this. Um, I mean, do you think that this shifts the landscape at all? Or do you think that this is sort of a blip and that all the other people will continue on? I mean, you, you mean know, like the 30 other knockoffs of the same knockoff? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they'll keep going. I mean, they're down to 300 bucks now. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know... They're toys, right? It's basically... They're not even toys. They're, like, hobbies. (laughs) You know, it's... You don't get a 3D printer to print stuff. You get a 3D printer to make the 3D printer. Yeah. Like, that's the hobby. It's like owning a boat. You don't own a boat to go out on the boat. You own the boat to, like, wash the boat and maintain the boat. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, every single, like, I know people who have these things. I mean, I've got one, it never gets touched. Everyone else I know, like, loves it. And every single thing they print looks like crap and comes with, like, a list of all the, like, upgrades and, like, things they need to do. Like, look at this thing I made this last night. Oh, I need to go in, you know, and tighten the the things. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about switching to this, like, rev of the firmware. That should fix this. And I don't know. Like... It does. Yeah. It does look cool on your desk, though. I know that's what it's there for. Yeah, I mean, someone should probably go into business printing <laughs> just shells of three D printers. Um. So what are those called? What's the What's the name for like the village? The Soviet village. There's a something village where it's just like a fake town, or it's just the facades of all the buildings. I've never heard of that. Uh, it's because like one of the czars like like to go on tours of the countryside to see his country, and so they just started building these fake cities <laughs> for him to drive through. Um, so, also this week, uh, Form Labs, who's do, uh, or yeah, Form Labs, um, which was a Kickstarter project to do the Form One three D printer that uses laser um, lithography Stereo or scary yeah. Lith- yeah. yeah. Um, and they'd been sued for patent violations and it sounds like they're settling and are going to begin shipping units shortly. Oh, cool. Um, so there is a way out of the patent. Though. Yeah. No details on what the, the agreement was, but the um, new cost. Yeah. But they are moving forward. It sounds like, which is exciting because that that'll be the first sort of semi-consumer friendly or semi-affordable stereolithography unit. Um, and obviously yeah, that has advantages. the look of something that like will be self-calibrating and just sort of work. And you know, I've played with it a little bit, and the build, you know, the quality of the builds are so much nicer. And you don't, have, you know, there's like so much less moving parts. Right. Right. Like and there's the, no registration errors, things like that. And I think there's a lot more opportunity for different materials as well with their process. No, it's always UV. Um, okay. It's like a UV liquid that turns into a plastic. I mean, you can get, there's like different densities of plastic and stuff. Oh, okay. But that's, you know, it's always a liquid that hardens with UV. No, the sort of the big problem with it is you've got like these, like, it's kind of like, snot when they're like snot but like i don't know like cooking oil or something when it's in the liquid form sure and so you just have the stuff everywhere and if you want to change it you got to like drain it and clean it or you know every piece that comes out of it you got to clean so it's not something you sort of set up and put away it's something that you dedicate a space to you gotta have a space dedicated to it and, and like the things like in that orange like hood Right. It's because if you accidentally leave the thing open, your build thing solidifies. Oh, uh, right, because it's <laughs> if you chisel it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And even if you know, it's not a perfect filter. So even if you just leave it for two, you know, like a month, it'll solidify. Sure. So I mean, it's 
It's definitely the best technology if you are building a lot of stuff at high quality and it's like your job to do that. Right. I'm not sure it's as good of a hobby technology as the squirty plastic is. Well, it's going to be interesting to see who adopts it and, and if But the, it looks nice. It looks yeah. nice. Yeah, it's actually been designed. It's not made of balsa. Well, I just mean the, the builds look nice. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's like thousandth of an inch resolution. Yeah. Um, so one of the uh, links I threw in our show notes here um, is this OpenCL map projection on GitHub. Yeah. Um, I threw it in mostly. I'm just interested to get your take on, you know, I haven't seen a lot of open source projects utilizing OpenCL in general. Um, there are actually a lot of them. They're not meant to be drop-in things for like, I mean, the problem is the really good open source out there is designed to be, you know, a drop-in for an existing thing. And they tend not to like solve problems. They tend to be, you know, like there's lots of like uh, motion, um, optical flow calculations and, you know, little like image processing components. Sure. You kind of have to have the whole OpenCL pipeline set up already. And then sort of shoehorning a piece of OpenCL into an existing OpenCL thing doesn't. I don't know how fun that is yet. Um, are there projects you've seen either coming out of WWDC or just in the last few months in general of OpenCL stuff that has surprised or impressed you in terms of the uses of the technology? Mm, not really. I mean, you know, there's sort of a small subset of problems which lend themselves to it very well. I mean, I guess the question is, do you think you know, looking at, for example, the new Mac Pro, obviously Apple was betting very heavily on you know, GPU yeah. compute. Yeah. Um, do you think they are making that bet based on either specific knowledge or good hypothesis on where the technology is going or just on, you know, this is the computer we can build now? And I mean, I think they took a look at the people who have been whining the most for a Mac Pro. You know, for the most part, no one needs them anymore. The people who need them, you know, the Basically, the first thing all of them said was, I need a box I can put a bunch of GPUs in. You know, like the two things people want one of these Mac, you know, the old Mac Pros for is that you can stick more than one GPU in it and you can stick more than one, um, you know, basically it's a glorified drive enclosure. And so they told the drive enclosure people to give up, move on with their lives. But, you know, I think, I think this solves... You know, I mean, the people who are still using, that we know that are still using Mac Pros, you know, sort of nursing their old machines are all, you know, video editors, people doing Resolve, people doing stuff that's already OpenCL. Yeah. And so, you know, it seems like a good drop-in for that. Okay. But nothing... But I don't think there's anything, there's like some sea change coming. Sure. And and in terms of things like the general OS... Um... You know, do you think we're going to see more random stuff in the OS OpenCL accelerated? I mean, I'm sure we'll start getting some AV. I mean, AV Foundation already has stuff. I mean, I'm sure more and more of the, you know, color sync stuff will move there over time. Um, core image is already all implemented in OpenCL. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that gets used a lot of places. All those drop shadows floating around your machine. Okay. All right. Interesting. I just, um, yeah, this, this OpenCL map projection thing was interesting to me again because it sort of is a very specific problem-solving library, basically. Yeah. It's, just, it's an interesting domain set. I didn't know that was an incredibly time-intensive thing to do before. Yeah, but it kind of makes sense when you think about it, depending on what you're doing in terms of map projection is... Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're just like projecting textiles, then you have a lot of them. Um, so one one topic I wanted to bring up with you, and um, this is not news related, but just a sort of general development thing, because I was um, browsing the Apple developer forums. I don't know what's NDA there, but acknowledging that they exist is probably NDA. Um, 
There are forums for developers you can join for free. Um, they have a new debugging forum. I think it's new, at least. I don't remember seeing it before. And it's dedicated just to debugging apps and understanding how to take advantage of the debugging tools that Apple provides. Um, and I thought it was interesting, and just in terms of some of the problems we've been solving lately that get into some you know deeper computer reissues and other things. Um, you know, what do you think the sort of state of the state is these days versus between complexity of applications and the tools that are available when it comes to solving problems? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's, so there's there's like two levels of there's two things I think of as debugging. Uh, one of them is actually debugging, where you like try to find bugs and remove them from your code. Um, and then there's what Apple likes to call profiling. Um, and that's where, I mean, there's been a lot of work in the profiling department in the last, you know, five years or so at Apple. And that's things like, you know, finding out your memory usage and your CPU usage and your battery usage and all these various, you know, like, fraction of a second by fraction of a second sort of, you know, granularity looking at how, what your, what your program is sort of doing to the computer hardware. Um, so you can do things like get the app to run on an older iPhone by using less memory or getting it to, you know, churn less hard drive or, you know, just sort of those like eking out more performance or better battery life or, um, you know, tuning the app, not as much making the app correct. Um, and so you, so things like instruments you think are, have sort of come along and are providing the sorts of things that a developer needs, or do you think there's a lot of room to go yet before those are really achieve their promise? I don't know. I mean, it depends on what, Part of this, you know, is an issue of what users expect. I mean, you know, one of the big pitches in Mavericks is, oh my God, we're going to use like a tenth of the battery. Um, now, that doesn't really matter unless the users come to expect it. I mean, if, you know, if users all of a sudden come to us and say, why is Scopebox still using my battery, then, you know, then we might be in trouble because we use a lot of battery um, yeah. and probably always will because we do a lot of calculations. But, um, you know, I've already just, just since installing Mavericks, I'm starting to get pissed off at Adobe, you know, and I give them, you know, they can have as much rope as they want to hang themselves with in Photoshop or Premiere. But they're constantly running 15% of one of my CPUs checking Creative Cloud to see if I have any updates. Yeah. <laughs> like all day, every day. And that's the kind of thing that I think Apple's trying to deal with. with some That's what they want to get rid of. Yeah, with the features in Mavericks as well that will basically not let an app get away with that to some extent. Although it's doing it on my machine right now. Well, yeah. Yeah, there may, that may be because it's a menu bar widget. Um, it may never get app napped. Mm, yeah, I mean, you have that. You have to actually opt into AppNap at this point. Oh, it's gonna it's gonna get turned on later, but okay. For now, they're letting people like say, "I want in on this, and I will tell you when I need to actually do something." Okay. Um, so what about, what about the first case you mentioned in terms of actually finding bugs? Obviously, we've got you know static analyzer and and new compile. Um, new continuous integration and those things. Um, so, I mean, it seems like, so there's two things that seem to have happened since, you know, 1979 when I started programming at the young age of zero. <laughs> I was going to say, I know uh, you're old, but. But so, I mean, I third grade, whatever that was. Um, so I think, you know, what we, I think the whole industry is in some ways a little surprised that we never buried C alive in a ditch somewhere. Because um, it's a horrible language in every possible way, except that it's the best language in every possible way. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's never going to go away as much as it should. 
And it lets you make so many dumb mistakes. And every single one of those dumb mistakes just blows things up. Um, and it's like we've spent, you know, the last 20 years of innovation in computer science has just been trying to make it harder and harder for a dumb, you know, a programmer who made a dumb mistake. They're, it's just trying to limit the damage. We're not trying to get it to the point where you don't make dumb mistakes. That's never going to happen. The point is just to limit the damage when you do. And so, you know, we spent the entire 90s trying to make like protected memory and multitasking so that when your app did something stupid, at least only it blew up. It didn't like take out the finder and it didn't take out the other app that was running that was doing something really important and hadn't saved yet. Um, and so at least, you know, at least customers knew who to be mad at when something broke. Um, and then, you know, but we've like, and so it seems like we've just sort of come to terms with this, that this is never going to get, uh, that we're never going to solve the underlying problem, which is that we're allowed to just write shit anywhere we want in memory. Um, and instead, you know, everyone's spending a lot of cycles trying to catch these things earlier and earlier and limit the damage they can do and whatnot. And so we've got things like, you know, you know, Clang is really, you know, the Clang static analyzer catches a lot of dumb mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and Arc, you know, is in a lot of ways just a debugging tool. <laughs> yeah. Well, where it, it just catches all your mistakes for you and fixes them. It feels like if you, I mean, they've increasingly made Xcode um, more aggressive in terms of not letting you make stupid mistakes. Like things Well, they've made the language. Well, they've made the language, but they've also made, I think, it, more things prevent you from compiling, right? Or mm. Mm, No, I mean, they keep adding warnings. So the other thing that's happened is, I mean, in the open source community, there's been a bunch of sort of crazy new ideas in how to solve this stuff, too. Um, you know, like four or five years ago, maybe six years ago, there was a project called Valgrind, Valgrind, which is basically you run your program and it links in a fake, its own copy of Malik and all of the other um, frameworks for creating and disposing of memory. Uh -huh. And when it does it, it, um, it keeps track of everything. And it actually keeps like every single like pointer reference and assignment and unassignment, it, all of those it like masks out uh, with its own code so that it knows, like so you recompile with Valgrind and it adds like bounds checking to every single read or write you do from memory. Nice. And then so it's not like the static analyzer. You actually have to run the app, and your app runs like crazy slow. Um, but it catches all these things that like maybe crashed before, maybe didn't, maybe just sort of didn't work quite right. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's a testament to the fact that like, you know, you can't, you can't. You know, so Valgrind is a compile time thing, so you actually have to have the source code. But it's a testament to like when you run some of these tools, how many things like. Other tools like um, Malik Scribble and stuff that can do stuff at runtime. How many things they find in like OS level frameworks? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this stuff is just really sniggly. It like it can sit there unfound for a long time. So I mean, it feels like if you're writing pure Cocoa, um, it's pretty hard to screw up memory at this point. Is that a fair assessment? If you're sticking to the Cocoa framework? If you have Cocoa and you have no C and you have no um, CF foundation or anything. Yeah. Um, and you're using Arc. Yeah. Then memory problems mostly go away, yes. And I think the problem I see is that then when you... As long as you name everything properly. Right. As long as Arc, yeah. Arc relies on you having been alive back when all we had to ensure every, how everything worked was naming conventions on methods and stuff. And so as long as you remember all those naming conventions and use them, then you're fine. Right. Um, so 
and when you drill down to core foundation though it's still obviously very possible to everything's retain release make yeah make mistakes um and it does feel like the tools for dealing with you know finding a memory smasher or something have not matured as quickly is that the tools are there you just have to actually opt into them because they're slow yeah you know i mean there's scribble and there's you know guard malik has gotten so much better I mean, just the improvements in that one like weird 20 year old thing is just like in the last three years it's gotten like a billion times better i think that was with snow leopard that guard malik finally became usable if i remember right yeah um huh i mean yeah so i don't know i mean there's tools out there there's definitely there's lots of tools and so the valgren thing has been recreated recently by google and is being rolled into um, LLVM. Oh, interesting. So we'll see that popping up soon, although Google predominantly codes in C++, and so um, it's probably going to sort of depend on whether or not Apple wants to do the, like, the last mile problem of getting it to work in Objective-C. Sure. Um, and then there are things like, I mean, there's lots. So LLVM is just like, it's a really nice like foundation to build these sort of tools on. That's you know the other thing that's nice is in the past when you wanted to make these sort of tools and you your compiler of choice was GCC, it was like it was sort of hairy to add stuff in there. Um, whereas LLVM is you know a good twenty years more modern. Yeah, and it's written in C. It's written in an object-oriented programming language, which is you know a good start. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of these sort of things popping up as part of LLVM. Hmm. Do you think, um, so that deals with sort of crashers and that kind of thing. Um, and then we talked about profiling. Do you think there's a future wherein your sort of IDE or that process helps you find performance issues like proactively? I mean, they're all, Hmm. I don't see why they couldn't. Um, I mean, they're already doing that by making things that you used to fire off in a deterministic manner. I mean, as, long, as soon as they get developers thinking in, I mean, so basically, so what they've done with AppNap, I, they talked about AppNap in the public stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what they've basically done is turn with AppNap. I mean, everyone has always known that the way to write good code is to have actions triggered by an event when it was time to do the action, right? You know, the old days, the model was you pulled for things. You just said, hey, is it ready? Is it ready? Did they click a button? Did they <laughs> click a button? Did they click a button? You just sat there in like a in a tight loop saying button, no, button, no, button, no, button, no until someone hit a button and then you went, oh, I got a button. And then you did the thing. And so, I mean, that has to happen at some level, but you know, the more and more we push that into the kernel, the more it can just ask once for every freaking thing on the computer. Right. Um, and you know, you can even start doing things with hardware interrupts and stuff. But you know, what they've basically done with AppNap is said, a timer is not a poll anymore, it's an event. Like all you do with the timer is say, I wanna I wanna check sometimes. <laughs> you don't say when because it's not, you know, it's an event now. It's like we'll tell you when it's time for you to check for that. And if you're not in the foreground, it's not time to check for that. Yeah. Which is smart, you know, that's the way to do it. Um well, you know, JavaScript just got this for the like animation timers. Um you know, 10 years ago, OSX added it to the window drawing stuff. So now you only draw when the screen's about to refresh. Um, and, you know, as we keep doing, you know, all we have to do is just get rid of anywhere where there's loops or type polling. I would and, they, and they can do that. For I would say um, if folks are listening who do have access to developer sessions, if you watch the multitasking and core Bluetooth sessions, um, there's some even more interesting stuff in this space happening on iOS, uh, in iOS seven. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what we're going to find is that 
things are going to become less deterministic and we're going to train programmers with things like blocks and GCD and things to do everything asynchronously um, on a need to do sort of thing. I mean, maybe a good way to take this is to have a conversation about what we think Coca is missing to become this like magical language where we never actually like write code in a, in a loop. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess um, that, that does bring up a question I've been sort of thinking about lately is um, you've got this world of GCD, Grand Central Dispatch, and blocks, um, which are fantastic. And then you've got, and there's not a lot of overlap here, but I see some overlap between that and the idea of moving all your code into different XPC services. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if there's a point at which those technologies sort of become one. I mean, at some point, like XPC is really cool and it's great for things like having a 32-bit process within your 64-bit app. But on the other end, and it, you know, more makes permissions it, escalation. Right. And it makes your yeah. app more robust. You can have a chunk of code crash without bringing down your app. But it also means you're sort of spinning up all these processes. It's, it's a nightmare to manage within Xcode. It's hard to troubleshoot. You end up sort of bringing LaunchD into the picture and add, you know, your complexity just ramps up. Um, you know, is there a point at which the language can be smart about saying, you know, what I've always wanted is a way to say, like, run this block as a separate process. Yeah, I mean, what there should be is a kernel level server that can get spawned to run a block. Yeah. So that you don't write any of the XPC code yourself. Yeah. There's just a framework. You say, fire this block. It handles, I mean, as long as everything does all the standard shit you need for XPC, like implements secure copying or whatever, secure coding, and then secure coding. Um, as long as you do that stuff and it can get the data and all of your objects proxied out to this XPC thing, it just does it and then it gives you the answer back. Um, and I don't think we're a long ways from that. The only issue with it is then it has to do things like guess permissions hmm. or lock you to some sort of finite set of permissions because obviously you don't want to like have a block, you know, you don't want this to be the way you get around the sandbox. Right. But you can't have a separate set of entitlements for these lines of code. Right. I mean, I guess you could, Yeah, that could be part of it. Run this block with this array of entitlement strings. Um, but then you have to have a background process that can request its own entitlements at any time, right. which is not very safe. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, you know, NSXPC connection, or NSXPC, whatever that live, uh, framework is, mm -hmm. um, that was added in Mountain Lion, I think. It gets us a lot of the way it's, there. It's a lot better if you ever had to work with XPC in the straight C uh, framework. And XPC is a lot better than MIG. Yeah. If you've ever had to work with MIG. And MIG is a lot better than mock, you're just like straight, you know, bog standard mock ports. If you ever had to work with bog standard mock ports. And Mock boards are much better than IPC <laughs> or shared memory. Uh, yeah, I mean, so we're getting, I mean, we keep getting better. What I wonder is why. I mean, is it really like, are we getting smarter? Are we learning from our mistakes? Because I don't really buy either of those theories ever. No, no. I mean, isn't it more so that we can afford to burn cycles? Yeah, we can burn cycles on things. Maybe. You know, NSX or XPC, even though it's pretty lightweight, has a lot more overhead than a mock port. Sure. And that mattered a lot more on a, you know, 25 megahertz machine. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I think it also has to do with like, I mean, they've been adding a lot of complexity to the kernel and stuff to get all this to work. Yeah. I don't know. What well, I mean, there definitely is that aspect of what they announced at WWC last week, which is... Um, some of the things they're announcing start to feel like things they've always wanted to do and just haven't had time for. It's not yeah, innovative new like things. Battery it's stuff, like, yeah. yeah, we've always had a whiteboard somewhere that said we need to do this, but you know, making DVD playback was more important for 10.1 and you know, sure. all, the, all these other things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, yeah. Yeah, it feels good. I mean, it seems like we're getting to like the, the polish stage maybe. Yeah, it's exciting, I think. Um, 
it sort of brings me into this other article I've got linked, which is not a new notion, but um, it was the first time I'd seen it written up so succinctly, which is the, the Kano model. Um, I don't know this. And this is a, you know, I'll link to the article because it's worth a read. Um, but the gist is that um, when you're looking at building products for users, um, something that is completely delightful to a user the first time they see it very quickly becomes expected in new products. Um, and so, you know, a website that does something awesome, you know, everyone's like, Ooh, that's awesome. And then six months later, if, if all websites don't have that feature, users right. think that that website, the, the website that doesn't have that feature is horrible. Um, and it's it sort of, it, it's a really good write up that gets into the, some of the actual, um, sort of modeling behind this. But, um, it, I think raises interesting questions for indie developers. Um, if you're starting an app from scratch and every time you start an app from scratch, there's a much bigger sort of baseline set of expectations you need to meet. Um, and if, you know, things like system frameworks aren't getting you most of the way there already, it becomes increasingly hard to go from zero to app. And right. Still but system frameworks users. do keep getting us closer to all these things. Well, so do you think that they keep pace or do you think, I mean, you know, do you think that building a much loved application today is easier or harder than building a much loved application two years ago? I mean, just think about all the stuff like what's an idea that really took off and that was really delightful that wasn't also sample code somewhere you could get or an open source project you could just download and compile and sell like the base thing hmm. you know i mean like there's not a lot of like we do some like difficult stuff engineering wise in our apps probably more than we should but like for the most part most of the apps you use day to day are like they're in like a spreadsheet you know or they're like you know they're like a FileMaker database. Mm -hmm. um, and that hasn't really changed, you know? Like, there are crazy scaling problems to some of these ideas, and there are, you know, like... But for the most part, we're just dicking around with the way things look now. Yeah. I mean, look at it, you know... Instagram or Vine or any of these, they weren't hard problems to solve. At least on the app side, as you say, the scaling side yeah. is probably. But, you know, that's something different. That's right. No one worries about that when they launch a product. <laughs> well, and, the you know, conversely, it may be that apps that I'm just looking through my flipping through my phone here. Um, and I think the only app I've gotten in the last year that impressed me was Autodesk's 123D Catch which is okay. a bit right but yeah. but that strikes me as an app that actually is a really crappy app and yeah no those are horrible i mean the ones that are just yeah there are phd papers that are skinned and there are like consumer facing apps right which are you know spreadsheets that are skinned really well yeah so there's, you know like the same way like i'm thinking of like what was there what have i gotten that really amazed me and like Yahoo Weather, I really liked when I got it. Cooler, Adobe's Cooler, yeah. their new app. Yeah. That's really nice. And, you know, somebody had to do the, like, color picker algorithm, but they had that on their website for, you know, three years now. Yeah, I haven't uh, actually downloaded that. I'm going to download that right it's now. really nice. I, I love it on the web. Well, the cool thing, that basically all it is on the other, on the phone, is it launches right into a live camera, and it just picks five colors. Awesome. Like, and it uses the, its like color model to pick colors that are like high contrast. My, uh, but, oh, that's so good. My guest bedroom in my house is painted based on the color of a, uh, a, uh, placemat in a restaurant in Italy. Wow. You like took the placemat in? I took a picture and, oh. and used that. But yeah, that nice. was the inspiration. So I could have used cooler. I could have gotten a trim color perfect as well exactly but alas alas yeah um but like apps that really were impressive like there's that one where you pointed your camera at something and it translated the text that was one of those like oh my god moments yeah definitely but you know those are all crappy looking apps um you know the apps they use every day 
I just use because they're nicer feeling, you know, and that's where you really differentiate yourself. I mean, there's not a lot, of, a ton of engineering decisions in something like OmniFocus. Yeah. But I, I'll, you know, I've dropped 300 bucks on that app over the years <laughs> in all of its incarnations. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'll keep doing it. Uh, you know, Feedly meh, looks nice. That's all I really care about. Yeah. And it may be that it's, you know, the, the, the Kano, Kano model is more noticeable in things like web apps um, where there's a different sort of user experience at play sometimes in terms of, you know, user accounts and returning to the site and the way it behaves right. and, and social yeah. features and things. Um, I'm not sure. But at the same time, I mean, one of the problems with the, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot more tool chain churn on the website too. Like yes. both good and bad. Like, you know, what you get for free now is definitely a lot more than you did 10 years ago. But there's also some of the like not invented here thing going on where, you know, there are too many options and there's... And none of them None progress. of them do everything. I mean, yeah. the biggest thing I'm seeing is that, you know, the, the, when, the day that you build an application, you have many great frameworks to choose from. Right. Almost none of them will have the features. None of them are the one you're going to want a year from now. Yeah. Right. So you um, just start porting right that's, that's a real issue. Yeah. Yeah. So for PHP, man, yeah. it just keeps getting better. Yeah. It, hey, PHP 5, 5 is that? Hey, man, it's kind of legs. Still works. Yeah. Gets it's out of rest- I mean, like, and I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't rev them more i mean no again it's that people lose interest especially with the open source frameworks it's no longer the new sexy thing or it's not based on the new sexy thing or yeah there's just no one to like push them i guess yeah yeah and i mean part of the problem is that things do get forked and progressed but upgrading is rarely an option you know yeah um it is what it is, but I think, you know, that definitely becomes a limiting factor on existing web apps getting better as it becomes, you know, I'm looking at this with, you know, some of our stuff as it becomes increasingly difficult to add cool new features to existing code without just getting the whole thing. Right. Um, but I mean, that happens with it. I mean, if you have an app for more than five years and you don't plan on taking a wrecking ball to it somewhere in there, yeah, you'll yeah. probably be naive. Um, what is the, uh, technical or article or was that going to be your chatter? I'm just chatter about that. I'm a chatter. Okay. Then the other one I wanted to just give a shout out to is the Ziphius aquatic drone. Okay. What's going on here? Um, so it's a drone sort of, it's, you know, in the way that all drones are really just glorified remote control vehicles. Right. Um, it's a remote control sort of water skimming thing that can move very, very quickly by sort of hydroplaning. Um, has a 720p wireless video link from a camera that has um, separate pan tilt zoom or separate pan and tilt. So wait, this does not dive. This sits on top of the water. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And then it also has onboard 1080p video capture and it's all controlled via a wireless link back to your iPad. Oh. Um, So it's a Kickstarter project now. They've shown prototypes. It seems like it's a real thing. I just I was interested because obviously we've seen lots of quadricopters and octocopters and things, not as much happening on the water, um, and there's a lot of water out there. Yeah, I mean it. It seems smart to me for like if if it works because, um, you know, it seems to me that at the end of the day, what we're gonna want to do with drones is shoot ourselves doing stuff. Like it's like that third, it's that third party camera, like roving camera. And that's sort of, you know, more than anything is going to lend itself to like extreme sports in the, in the near term. Right. And, you know, GoPro got their start making, you know, film cameras for surfers. Seems like someone could make, get their start making a drone for surfers. Well, and this could, I mean, this is a product that also has, you know, obvious industrial uses and things in a very 
you know, narrow segment of the world, but if you need to sort of check out the hull of a boat at water level or you need to go and investigate, you know, piers or other things, like, you know, having a really cheap remote yeah. control vehicle with high quality video and recording and good battery life, you know, I'm sure there will be a lot of people in that space who want this as well. I suppose. Um, and if they have an open SDK, there may be options for automating things and who knows. Oh. Uh, anyway, it's just interesting that, you know, people are doing things other than quadrocopters and that they're doing it via Kickstarter as well. Yeah. So. Um, you want to move on to chatter? Sure. Uh, my chatter this week is actresses' heads exploding. Yes, this was good. Yes, you saw this, I take it. I did. So someone goes in and rotos and... and makes act- actresses' heads explode in classic scenes of films and also cartoons. But it's really good. It's well done. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, really good, like, head removal, roto work. Yeah. I, was I mean, impressed. the only thing I would say is there's a little too much context to some of the, sh- the movies. Yes. Like, they could have just, like, gotten to more heads exploding. I think... I mean, I realized that they were probably limited by the amount of time it takes to roto something, but... Yeah, I think that's... Cut out half the scenes and roto twice as many heads. Yeah. Get to it. I think the best part about it is the really cheesy explosion um, mat they use. And it's, yeah. it's not like a big gory <laughs> explosion. It's sort of like a fizz pop and then yeah. it's gone. Yeah. It's good. Um, definitely worth checking out, though, especially if you're into video nerd stuff. Yeah. And, you know, another two years and this will just be a filter in After Effects. No, it'll be an iPad app by J.J. Uh, Abrams. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Um, Isn't there, there's a new iPad app that'll put a dinosaur in Yeah, it. I heard about that. I think I was telling you about that. Oh. It's like, it's like Jurassic Park style dinosaurs. Cool. I know. What more could you want? Um, so I was thinking like, what if you had an app? Maybe it's just a camera to start with. Um, but it is an imaginary friend for your kid. Ooh. So it's just every time it's this app where you can take a picture of your kid and like you like sit down with them and like draw out their imaginary friend. Like, you know, it's like one of those like, you know, like South Park making sort of things where you drag on the hair and stuff. And so you put together what they think their imaginary friend looks like. And then anytime there's a shot of them, it'll like stick their friend in there. Creepy. Right, but then do that for video too. Yeah, I, that actually sounds like a, a good app. Yeah. Probably copyright that, patent it. Yeah, make it so. Somebody do that. Okay. And give us 20%. Yeah. Send me a, send me a promo code. <laughs> send us two promo codes. All right, there we go. Hard bargain. Yeah. Uh, what's your chatter this week? So I want to bring up, this is a blog post that Patrick Inhofer linked to on his Sunday thing that he does every week uh, which I should also recommend it's a great like Sunday morning dump of all of the week's color news um, but this was a link to Technicolor's their um, Cinestyle Cinesist Color Assist um, blog. And it's, I don't, so I, yeah, I think everyone should read this, especially if they're like color scientists. And we should have a conversation off, you know, somewhere on Twitter or something about what the hell these guys are doing. Because I've like, so on Sunday morning, I, posted a comment here saying like you need to post the source video you're using for this because this doesn't seem right um and they haven't done it yet uh, in fact they haven't even moderated my comment um which makes me wonder about the uh but so anyways the the blog post basically accuses everyone out there of making scopes that are not accurate um, 
for video playback, except for their Cynicist yeah. scopes, which is, you know, demonstrably not true. Uh, right. I mean, we test against all of these companies. You know, they don't have arm scopes in here, which is why I have not laid a royal smackdown on them. Um, but, you know, I don't like Premiere Pro scopes. I don't like Final Cut 7 scopes. I don't even really like Final Cut X's scopes, but they're all correct. Right. Um, as long as you're not doing something really janky. And I just, they don't put in enough information here for me to figure out what stupid thing they did. My assumption is that they tagged everything as sRGB, which puts most of these apps into like, oh, you're not playing video, like pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, so it was operator error, not... Well, I mean, technically they should all do the right thing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not willing to say that Final Cut X is doing the right thing yet because they love color science so much that they're going to put some color science in your color science. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, this like thing where they change the gamma curve, I totally believe they're doing that because they love doing that sort of stuff. But they shouldn't be doing it to the scopes. Right. Even they're not that bad. I mean, maybe they are. I don't know. So, I, yeah, check this out. Tell me if you think, if you have any theories. Or go ahead and post a comment on there um, asking them to see the video because they won't, they won't reply to me. All right. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't seen this before, so I'm going to take a look now. It's like, it's just sort of a rambling post. They get, all, they get like color spaces and color formats mixed up in the first paragraph. Um, and it just sort of goes downhill from there. Like, it's not very technically accurate, and it seems to be kind of... I mean, the point was like, look, our scopes are right, and these other scopes are wrong, uh, which is, you know, always a, always a fun point to make, but... They're doing things like... I don't... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I can't tell. All right. Well, we will take a look and see, but yeah. I want to see their video. Yeah, that's the way to go with this. It's it's a shame they're not really engaging in the community because I've seen a lot of discussion on Twitter about this. It's a shame they haven't chosen to engage in the sort of way where these conversations happen. Yeah, yeah, like, oh well. I mean, yeah, it seems like, hmm, who knows? Maybe we'll hear something from them. Yeah. All right. Well, if you're from Technicolor, drop us a line. Well, we'd love to talk to you. Yes. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Okay.